This podcast is part of the Christian Geek Central Network at ChristianGeekCentral.com. Hello, and welcome to Theology 101, the podcast Yay. where we talk about theology as simply as I possibly can. <laughs> With me today, because I am Zachary Oliver, the owner and proprietor of the Theology Gaming Blog, is a special guest who also likes to talk about theology. With me! Yay! And his name this is... Michael Jones. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Are you qualified? Am I? Uh, I hope so. Oh, um, I w- I I'm a follower of Christ and stuff, so yeah. Qualified enough. Qualified enough. <laughs> and our theological topic today, and one that Michael Jones is eager to talk about, is the Holy Spirit. Yay! Yeah. This is pretty, con- I guess we could call it a contentious topic, but it depends on what you mean when you're talking about the Holy Spirit, as it were. Right. So It's, it's more contentious because it's not always clearly defined and yeah um even history doesn't have a whole lot of information about the holy spirit yes so let us start at the beginning as close to the beginning as we can possibly muster right (laughs) which would be in genesis wherein the spirit of god hovers over the waters so actually wait the spirit of god hovering over the waters isn't that also in john but this is the first reference to it. So right. Assuming right. assuming from a, a chronological perspective. There you go. Continue, please. John kind of just cribs off of Genesis a little bit. Right. That we, I guess this would be the origin of the thing. Right. Okay. Continue, so, please. So when it says uh, Spirit of God, most people say it's the Holy Spirit. I mean, that's pretty much general common knowledge in Christian circles, I would guess. Mm-hmm. Okay. So... The actual Hebrew language phrase is Ruach HaKodesh, which can be translated as Holy Spirit or Spirit of God, and depends on what religion you're a part of. So let's right. say you're a Christian. Most of the time you're going to say, okay, that's Holy Spirit, right? No question there. But if you're in Judaism, then from you, you're looking at the actual Hebrew text of it, right? Because the Genesis scripture is not being interpreted in light of New Testament scripture. So, to them, the words literally mean the spirit of holiness or the spirit of the holy place. So, when God sends his spirit, the spirit is not God himself, but it is mostly like a divine messenger. kind of. So, like, like a, spirit, a spirit of God, like from God, but not yeah. the spirit of God. So, if you think about when... God sends an evil spirit to Saul to kind of give him discomfort and such. That sort that of that sort of idea, right? Yeah, I mean that's the negative way it could be done, right? But when we're talking about creation and Genesis, we're talking about a positive version of that, right. like a divine force, quality, and influence of the Most High God over the universe, creatures. Depends on what the context it's being used in, right? Because if you're looking at actual Hebrew, then the actual phrase is dependent on the context because they're not using traditional or when I say traditional I mean traditional to English speakers <laughs> verb sentence structure so right it's a uh, definitely a different language yeah but because we're Christians we are not taking this particular interpretation of the concept we're talking about the Holy Spirit as we know of as the member of the Trinity so right. you know Father Son Holy Spirit this, the Trinity concept itself is pretty much integrated into how the theology of the Holy Spirit developed. So even though the Holy Spirit was an ambiguous concept for people who were in the early church, and it wasn't doctrinally defined in a very precise way, before there was a doctrine, Christian prayer always invoked the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So it wasn't in a foreign concept, it just wasn't a well-defined one. Right. That gave people an understanding of it. So, you know, I, I, it's it's kind of an, of course, secondarily. The reason why it's ambiguous is because the divinity and the existence of the Trinity itself is an implicit, not an explicit concept in the Bible. Right. It's not directly stated, but it's more implied. Yeah. So you can find it, like in Genesis, you know, they say, let us create man in our image, that sort of thing. And then... Jesus says, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, which kind of gives credence to the idea of the Spirit, right? And there's tons of references to the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. It's very central to 
most theology. So if we think about the Virgin Mary, the Holy Spirit conceived Jesus, and then basically the mother of God, as they would call in Catholic circles, (laughs) gives birth (laughs) to Jesus. So the Holy Spirit's involved in that. The Holy Spirit is involved in Pauline theology, because if you think about how he is always talking about the integration of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer, because you're an imitator of the Lord, because you have joy in the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit indwells you, and this gives you the ability to live the Christian life. I mean, you can see it in First Thessalonians, you can see it in... 1 Corinthians 6.19, where he says that the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, and he's within you, that you have from God, and that's not yours. So that also plays into the idea that grace is the unmerited favor of God, (laughs) to use the more (laughs) technical terminology. So how would you say, okay, so Michael, what would you say grace is? Just, I mean, a popular definition, not the one I just said. Well, to me, that is a popular definition. It's it's basically grace means, and, and this is kind of ent- intertwined with mercy. Um, you did something, you deserve a certain uh, consequence for that thing, but grace is saying you aren't getting that consequence. In fact, you're going to get something good. So, it's grace has been very ambiguously defined in many Christian circles, um, and it's taken on many different flavors and forms. So, uh, for me, from what I understand, grace is defined kind of ambiguously, um, more intertwined with mercy, and that, like, the mercy of God is that we are getting something that we we deserve a certain fate. Uh, we are getting something that we don't deserve uh, because God loves us. Um, and so, from what I've understand, grace and mercy are two sides of the same coin. Uh, grace is the unmerited favor, like favor of God, like you get a job or something great happens in your life or, or whatever. Um, like the whole concept of eternal life, that's kind of like a favor thing. Um, mercy is like the positive end of the negative side of that. So, like, I'm not getting bad consequences. I am getting good repercussions even though i deserve bad things so yeah that works yeah yeah <laughs> it's a little <laughs> little uh, um yeah it's it works <laughs> yeah so i think we could say pretty definitively that the holy spirit itself is also an unmerited gift right in itself so from whatever perspective you're looking at grace it's it's part of the whole thing whether right, you see it right. as a mark of salvation or if you see it as in you know proof that you're saved or if you want to also just see it as like a thing that happens to a Christian when they become a Christian. So we're talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit right now? Not yet. We're getting there though. We're getting there. (laughs) Because that's that's where I'm going. Anyway, continue. So we also see the works of the Holy Spirit in the Bible. I mean, that's pretty obvious stuff. But if you go into Acts, the Pentecost... And then Jesus says to baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. I said that before. But the other thing is that the Gospels just say a lot about the Holy Spirit. That's good to know. Right. Okay. But in terms of post-Scripture, let's say, because at a certain point, and I'm going to say the cap is about 70 AD, which is when Romans was written, and then a little bit beyond that, we could probably say John or Revelation. I mean... Inspired scripture, that's when we kind of cut off. Unless you're adding Apocrypha and stuff. So, this is just from, from the 66. <laughs> right. Uh, wasn't, wasn't the books of, was um, like Ephesians, Galatians, Philippians, is that all written after Romans or before Romans? Paul's writings are written between, at least most people would say, between 50 A.D. to 70 A.D. Huh. Okay. And if not that, then a little bit earlier, because we don't exactly know what happened to Paul. Right. Most people, Christian tradition assumes that he was killed in Rome. Right, at some point. Or executed. Right. Which may or may not be true, we don't know. So, basically, his fate is like a total mystery. But assuming what happened to most of the other... Right. Christian apostles and right. more of the confirmable ones, other than the Apostle John, 
then we kind of assume that he was beheaded or he died in some horrific way. Right. <laughs> I'm not sure if that's a good assumption or not. But, uh, it's uh, it's it's an un, not unmerited assumption. Yeah, it's a reasonable assumption to make based on what we know about what happened to Christians in the early church. Right. Okay. So, the first creedal announcement of doctrine or otherwise, or one of the early ones, the Apostles' Creed, does reference the Holy Spirit at least once. So, okay, for most people, don't know. Do you know what the Apostles' Creed is? I actually, I, I know of the concept. I don't know what it is specifically. Okay, the Apostles' Creed is basically w- one of the first announcements, or let's say creeds, that people adhere to in terms of here are the basics of Christian belief. Right. So nobody knows when it was written. Obviously, it was written after the Gospels and that sort of thing. Most Some people say it's earlier, early church, like when the apostles were running around and then some say it's not but in terms of the apostles creed it's used in a lot of churches even today because basically everybody can agree what it says so i guess i'll just recite it now go for it (laughs) okay so the first point is i believe in god the father almighty creator of heaven and earth that's pretty simple stuff (laughs) yep 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 yep. number two i believe in jesus christ his only son our lord okay number three he was conceived by the power of the holy spirit and born of the virgin mary Right, and that's where we get, you know, first mention of the Holy Spirit outside the Bible. Yeah. Number four, under Pontius Pilate, he was crucified, died, and was buried. Right. Number five, he descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. Number six, he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. Number seven, he will come again to judge the living and the dead. Number eight, I believe in the Holy Spirit, (laughs) just in case we didn't know it. (laughs) Number nine, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints. Okay, when we mean Catholic, we just mean the universal church. Right, because the word Catholic is not specifically referring to that church. The word Catholic actually means universal. Yeah, which is good to note here. (laughs) Yes. The Catholic Church as we know it did not come into being until, I would say, whenever the... Western and Eastern Roman Empire separated from each other and became weird and crazy stuff. Anyway. Right, right. <laughs> I think we discussed this in the last Theology 101, so I'm not Probably so. Okay, so number 10 is they also believe in the forgiveness of sins. Number 11, the resurrection of the body. And number 12, the life everlasting. Amen. So, I mean, that's pretty much what every Christian does believe in some way or another. Right. I, I would say. Yeah, if anyone can't really agree to that creed there's probably like some serious serious doctrinal stuff going on <laughs> and that's where we would start or if actually you're like a christian philosopher or if you're a theologian who kind of has problems with spiritual things or postmodernist, or there's a lot of there are a lot of variations but in terms of mainstream christian belief i would say in america for the very least this is pretty much standard stuff right so now, the Holy Spirit concept, right, is in there, but it's not defined in a way that says, like, oh, this is what the Holy Spirit does, doesn't do, et cetera, et cetera, right? Right. Whereas uh, the God, the Father, and the Son, it, it doesn't really give definition to those either. No, but in terms of just looking at, let's say, Scripture, right? there's a very clear picture of what God does, who God is. Mm-hmm. Even in terms of Jesus, it's very clear who, who Jesus is, what he does. But there are a lot of, like, references to the Holy Spirit. But nothing directly saying, this is exactly what the Holy Spirit does. Yeah, and, or yeah. it's ambiguous what it is. Right. What its relation to God the Father and God the Son is. Right. So that's where things ended up getting a little iffy. Mm. Because what happened over time was that there were various offshoots of Christianity, like... Arianism, Macedonianism, and they would say to certain parts, like, they would go, okay, so God the Father is God, and Jesus is a creature. Right. Or they would say, God the Father is God, but, and so is the Son, God is Son is God, but the Holy Spirit is some kind of divine force, but not, is not co-equal with, you know, Jesus and God. And right, so, maybe like an angel or, or something else like that. Yeah. yeah, and a lot of people, some people were kind of iffy about this, and other people were like accepting, and there was a big debate about it, which they had a giant church council, and the Nicene Creed of 325 came into being. 
which was basically a document which was there to define things explicitly. So we were talking in the time of Constantine when he was trying to define Christian belief, and he didn't really like the people who didn't believe in the Trinity in the way that he did. Because if you don't have a divine Holy Spirit, then you don't have really a Trinity to go on here. Right. There's the Trinity. The word for Trinity doesn't really apply. Yeah. So basically there were two drafts of the Nicene Creed, one in 325 and one in 381. Both of them define the Holy Spirit as, you know, divine and part of God. So they're co-equal persons, you know, what is it? Three persons in one being? Right, three in one, that sort of thing. So, and there's one other weird little side thing I want to talk about before I go on. Okay. Which is the cleavage between how Orthodox and Western churches believe in the procession of the Holy Spirit from the Father. So, the it's called the filioque controversy. So, okay. the procession of the Holy Spirit is an important thing in the Nicene Creed. So, it says that, like, the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father, right? Right. So, it's, you know, God sends the Holy Spirit to people and that sort of thing, right? Yeah. So, it, it kind of maintains the threefold relationship because the... F- the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father by itself, right? But the filioque, which is added to the Orthodox version of the Nicene Creed, says that it proceeds from the Father and the Son, which changes the relationship between them. A okay. Bit. Yeah. <laughs> um, or as someone would say, the relation... So basically the procession of the Holy Spirit, just, just to define this, is the relation which the third person sustains to the first and the second. Wherein by an eternal and necessary, not voluntary, act of the Father and the Son, their whole identical divine essence without alienation, division, or change is communicated to the Holy Ghost. So, it's very strange. It's, it's hard to understand why this was controversial, right? <laughs> In our I, I, I can kind of understand it. I, I actually don't agree so far with that definition of the relation to the Holy Spirit, but please continue. Yeah, that's what most people said. Like, most people were like, the procession was just... the pers- So basically, like, they are connected in a way that is not... is different, somewhat different, right? Right. So there's right. only... Yeah, so it basically, like, if you add Father and Son, it kind of puts a primacy on the... Father and Son, and not so much the Holy Spirit being co-equal, right? And that's where Western Christians of the Roman Catholic type would have a problem with it, right? Whereas the Orthodox theology say that it proceeds from the Father and the Son, and they don't have a problem with it because they're looking at it at a different perspective. Jesus Christ is God, and he's God in both, but in Orthodox theology, he's also more of like a divine essence, the Holy Spirit or Jesus? Jesus. Okay. And so he can also, quote-unquote, breathe out the Holy Spirit, sort of. And most of them use John fifteen twenty six to affirm this. It's kind of weird, like because it says, Well, when the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth which proceedeth from the Father, he shall be a witness of me. Which most people would use as an affirmation of it. Or not an affirmation. Again, this is all kind of interpretive jargon that, to our context, makes zero sense. Right. <laughs> But it is there, so it's important to know. And, and one more thing before I stop my history lesson here <laughs> is that, okay, so in discussing the Holy Spirit, or really in discussing theological concepts at all, they're not so much explaining how God works. Right. That is something that a lot of people miss. They are as dumbfounded about how any of this works as you are. <laughs> how does God's grace work? Well, we can kind of... Uh, have a, a definition of how of what, it works. What grace is, yeah. but not how it works. And in the same way, the Trinity is a useful framework for understanding, at least in the vaguest human terms that we can use, how it, right. how it, they're basically not explaining God, but they're defining a mystery so that so, we can recognize that mystery's existence. Right. So the idea behind theology is not to def- not to explain God, but to define God so people can come to more of a personal explanation of God in their own life. Would you say that's accurate? Yes. Okay. And yeah. I know, but people see define and explain as two separate things. 
Right. Like to define something is kind of like to say, this is what it means. Right. I, I think right, I'm right. using it in a much looser sense than a lot of people. Right. Defining it is just saying, this is what it is. Explaining it is saying, this is what it does. That's what we mean, right? Yeah. Maybe there's a better way to put this. Okay. Mm. So let's say that theology is descriptive. Right. But that doesn't mean that it is the end-all, be-all of what's actually the reality behind all right. the things. Right. So in when people were trying to define the Trinity and the Holy Spirit and all this stuff in the early church, they weren't so much like trying to put God in this box that they enjoyed to put him in <laughs> to prevent him from doing stuff. Oh, no, right. God's going to do bad things, right? It's right, more of we like – can put God in a box. Yeah, well, a literal box. Yeah, 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 yeah. But it's more to protect like – the denial of the Holy Spirit's existence or the denial of Jesus Christ as divine, right? These are things that a lot of people were doing, but they didn't realize the consequences of said right. ideas, right? Right. And so if you think about how Christianity would have developed, if, for example, Jesus was not considered God, it would probably not have lasted as long as it did. So right. In some Jesus, sense, yeah. yeah. In some Go sense, ahead. I have to assume that God was involved in the way that they define these doctrines, so that we would be studying it right now, right here, right now, <laughs> in the way that we're looking at it, right? Right. You know, two thousand years later, approximately. Yeah. So basically, we are all aware of our limitations in discussing spiritual things, but that doesn't Definitely. mean we shouldn't discuss them. Right. Right. That just means that everything, really, everything, should be taken with a grain of salt and tested. Yeah. So there you go. There is my history lesson spiel about Yay. the Holy Spirit. <laughs> right. Okay. And so um, I guess this is where I come in from. And this is all of all of what I have to say is more from my viewpoint. Like we were saying, like more. It's my opinion, and it is what I would consider my doctrine. But it's not necessarily truth i find yeah. it to be truth for me but i would not say that it is ultimate truth because i believe there's a difference between personal truth and ultimate truth this is personal truth that i have found to be true for me it may be true for you as well but i cannot call it ultimate truth does that make sense yeah you you sound like kierkegaard <laughs> i'm sorry you sound like Soren kierkegaard it just makes me laugh okay uh fair enough <laughs> um but anyway, I, I, to be, I, I find that funny because I don't even know who that is. But anyway. Soren Kierkegaard was a theolo theologian of the 1800s who lived in Denmark. Okay. <laughs> who was uh, well known for being an existential philosopher also. Okay. So he says basically things like this. The thing is to understand myself to see what God wishes me, really wishes me to do. The thing is to find a truth which is true for me to find the idea for which I can live and die. Right. His, right. his affirmation is the, of the personal element of Christianity. I would completely agree with that, and I think that's a really good way to put it, because yeah. my Christianity is not necessarily your Christianity. You know, God is a personal experience, and so if we're not pursuing him on a personal level, it's kind of meaningless. Yeah. That's as, as far as I'm concerned, that's, it's meaningless. So, there needs to be a personal investment there. And right. I think that's part of how faith works anyway. Right. And so, yeah, it's uh anyway. So just to say this, like you would consider yourself in the charismatic tradition. Right. Generally along those lines, uh, yeah. specifically uh new apostolic reformationist um and Which is something I didn't know about until you told me about. It. Right. And for those for those of you who understand some of the uh denominations, it's like it's a long word of faith, but like the next step up. And so uh, I'm not going to define everything about it right now because that's not there's that's not important. What's important is the conversation that we're having. But so you understand my understanding of the Holy Spirit. Know that I come from a charismatic background, and so the gifts of the Spirit are very important to me. So from what I understand of the Holy Spirit. Uh, I know that for a long time, there wasn't a whole lot dealt with the Holy Spirit. I would say, and this is my guess, but I'm not a history buff at all. <laughs> uh, Zachary would probably correct me on this. Um, but I would say from about 500 AD up until about the 1700s, there wasn't really a whole lot of uh, manifestations of the Holy Spirit or talking about it or anything like that. And so... 
and approximately the 1700s up hmm. through early 1900s, there or, started to be... Go ahead. We could say more manifestations of the spirit in a way that is typical of, let's say, charismatic movements. Because it is a little different than the way in which, say, even early church, and then you can consider between then and 17, 1800s. I mean... There may have been. There was records of miracles and other strange things. Right, but. right. And that's, that is very important to note, yes. So, so it uh, depends, you know. <laughs> but in right, terms of is. the – yeah, but in terms of the charismatic movement, it definitely has historical precursors, but not in the way that you see it now. Right, and, to, and I would totally agree with that, and I th- that, is a, that is a really good point to make. Um, what I'm talking about specifically is um, – like huge moves like uh let me give an example and this is this is what i def- would define as a revival that's where people come to uh, a meeting or a gathering place and worship god in and some would call strange ways uh with like singing and wild dancing and not not out of uh, any sort of mania or anything like that, but because they feel that that is what they must do in order to worship God in that moment. Um, and so uh, along with that comes speaking in tongues and healing and prophecy and so on and so forth. Um, and and a lot of really great preachers have come out of those movements, um, specifically uh, Smith Wigglesworth, who was one of the first uh men to really start championing the gifts of the Spirit and moves of the Holy Spirit and revival and so on and so forth. Um, uh, Catherine Coleman, um, uh, Amy Semple McPherson. I have a list of them somewhere. It's just not nearby. But <laughs> or in your if, head. If you st- huh? <laughs> or in your head. Right. It's, uh, it's in my head. Uh, there's a lot of names that I could start naming of people who have been like champions of the move of God and, and people who say that miracles have worked through those people or God worked miracles through those people, excuse me. Um, but yeah. And so that's where we get the ideas for like big tent revivals and stuff like that. And, and, you know, one preacher on the, on the front, like preaching, maybe not hellfire and brimstone, but definitely preaching his heart out. And then people would come up to him for prayer afterwards and, and, um, get healed or, or basically the stuff that's talked about when the Bible talks about the gifts of the spirit. <clears throat> and so for me, that is, that, that is where I define my history. Like as a, like for the Christians that came before me, cause there's, that's not to put, not to separate myself from general Protest, Protestantism, um, but more, that is where I put my focus is on the gifts of the spirit and, and to define, um, there's nine gifts that are, I think it's, uh, first Corinthians 13. Um, uh, there's nine gifts of the spirit listed. There's, uh, tongues, interpretation or speaking in other tongues, interpretation of those tongues, uh, the gift of prophecy, the gift of words of knowledge, the gift of words of wisdom, um, the gift of miracles, the gift of faith, the gift of healing, and the gift of discernment of spirits. And so, along those lines is where um, these great meetings sort of happened. A lot of which stemmed with uh, speaking in tongues um, and healing. Those are two. Those are two of the main ones. Prophecy. I haven't understood prophecy to be anything even remotely to active up until probably about the fifties of the 1950s. Hmm. However, like I said, I'm not a history buff, (laughs) so I could be completely wrong about all of this and and it's been going on forever and I'm just crazy. Um, but yeah, maybe, (laughs) maybe, maybe I'm just crazy. Um, but for, uh, to, and and I feel like if we're going to define the gifts of the spirit, we should define the other camp, which is, so people who believe in gifts of the Spirit, charismatics, say that the gifts did not die with the apostles. They're alive today. They're accessible. And when you come to understand God more and you ask for those gifts, he will release them to you. Uh, the other camp is called cessationism, and uh, they say that the gifts did die with the apostles, that it was for a time and a season, but that it's not um, – 
they no longer exist. Like God will work in, in healing and miracles every once in a while, uh, but for the most part, people don't really have direct access to them. And so there, there are scriptures on both sides, but I'm not going to debate that right now. <laughs> so when I think of the Holy Spirit, there's a few things that I think of and, and I would say is tied inherently to the Holy Spirit. And that would be um, uh, a presence that's in the room. Uh, like something that is, you can't see it, but you can maybe feel it, whether it's like the hair standing up on your arm or goosebumps or maybe like a coolness along your back or your arms or, or somewhere along your body. Um, that would be um, a feeling of great peace, um, a calming sort of feeling around you, um, and more clear thoughts, clarity coming to your mind. Um generally being able to focus easier. Um, this is all sort of like the, the minor stuff, the greater stuff. And this has been true for me more recently would be, um, feeling like an urge to, to speak in other tongues. If you do speak in tongues or, or manifestation of the spirit of tongues, which is how charismatics would define the baptism of the Holy spirit generally by the manifestation of the gift of speaking in tongues. Hmm. Um, that's more of, that's one of those, like, like a, uh, like a, not like a place marker, but like a, um, uh, something that you have you have once you have reached this goal this happens you know what i mean and it's not to try to say that we're achieving things but i mean like if that happens that's a sign that you've been baptized in the holy spirit so um speaking in tongues is like a big thing <laughs> right it's definitely a big thing uh, that's the first thing that happened to the apostles on the day of pentecost was they began speaking in other tongues and and i believe that there's three different definitions of tongues and i am trying not to turn this into podcast about the gifts of the spirit <laughs> but when we talk about the holy spirit it's you can't not talk about the gifts you know what i mean yeah. um and so there's three different kinds of tongues to where that I've understood. Uh, there's uh, the there's tongues in the there's the angelic tongues, which is listed in certain parts of scripture. I'm not sure of the addresses, um, which is it sounds like babbling. Um, it sounds like uh, n- some kind of language that nobody really understands. Um, for me, it, and I, I've, he- I've heard other people speak in tongues and it always sounds different. And that's because we kind of understand it as like a, a personal language between you and God. It's where you can talk to him and, and it's, it's, it's a gift from him to talk to him when you don't know how to pray or what to say. Um, kind of, it's, it's this guttural utterings that you, you can't put into words, but you need some way to express it. And that tongues is what that is for me, my gift of speaking in tongues. Uh, it sounds like a mix between Hebrew and Japanese, um, which is kind of odd, but it (laughs) makes sense to who I am. No, I know, but it makes sense to who I am because, um, I have a lot of respect for Japanese culture and, um, I also have a lot of respect for Hebrew culture or the the as uh, Israeli uh, people, and so <clears throat> it makes sense to me. Um, but everybody's tongue sounds different, and it's not it's not necessarily a full language. Um, the way that language is understood, like there's not. There's phrases and there's syllables, but there's not like sentence structure and specific words that are used. Um, like I will repeat certain phrases in certain orders uh, in different ways, but it's not like I'm speaking an entirely new language. When I first started speaking in tongues, it was a couple couple syllables and a couple phrases, and I would kind of repeat those over and over and over. But as I began to understand speaking in tongues, it was like I was learning a language, and the more that I understood it and the more that I practiced and used it, the more my language expanded. So that is... So you ascribe this to the Holy Spirit, right? Right, right. Okay. So that this is... is like the interpretation of the Holy Spirit as being like active in telling people to speak in tongues or things of that sort. 
Um, so, like, in my denomination, for example. Right, right. It's mostly like, why would you do that? Why would <laughs> and I I'm not saying that as, like, a negative thing. It's just... No, 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 no. It's, it's not understood. Yeah. So It's uh, not understood why would I... and or it's not practiced or the interpretation of what Paul says in there is that, like, tongues is not a thing that we should be actively pursuing... Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. You know, I well, mean, what he some, says is that some would cite the dangers of, let's say, letting in other kinds of spirits into yourself and that kind of thing. But right, and I could totally understand that. Um, Paul, Paul, even Paul does say though that uh, I wish all of you spoke in tongues. So yeah, and he also says like all the spiritual gifts would be done away with at some point. Again, these are all interpretations. Right when when the um, when the perfect comes, the imperfect will pass away. Yeah, uh, but that's just trying to define when the perfect comes. Anyway, so <laughs> <laughs> um, where was it? Go? Oh, so that's one form of tongues. There's um, the and there's speaking in tongues where you're actually speaking another language. Uh, that you don't un- you don't know, but you're actually speaking another language, and that's evidenced in Acts just after the day of Pentecost, when or uh, j- on the day of Pentecost, just afterwards, where the apostles um, went out into the streets and started speaking, and people heard them in their own language. I've heard stories of evidence of this, but uh, two separate stories. There was one man; um, he's a favorite teacher of mine. His name is Chris Valentin. Um He was it was before. Uh, he, he wasn't sure what he was going to speak about. He had stuff prepared, but he felt the Holy Spirit had said to ditch his teaching and speak about something else, but he was still waiting for the revelation of what to talk about. And so he was praying for revelation, and he said, Lord, give me revelation. Then he started speaking in tongues, and someone was nearby, and they said um, – I didn't know you spoke Hebrew. And he said, I wasn't speaking Hebrew. And he said, you were, you were speaking Hebrew with an accent. And he's like, Whoa, what did I say? And the guy said, uh, you're praying to the Lord for revelation. And so, um, that's one story. There's another story of another gal named, um, Heidi Baker. Um, she's a missionary in, uh, Pemba, Mozambique. And, um, she, if you, uh, look at her, look her up, she actually has like a foundation and she's, when you start understanding it, she's like well-known and, and whatnot, but uh, at least in charismatic circles. Um, but she was in the hospital one day for something that was going on. And later the Lord actually healed her of what was going on. But she, well, this is while she was still trying to understand exactly what was happening. Um, but she was singing in tongues, which is a thing. Um, and it's actually a really powerful way to connect with God. Um, I've done it. It's a lot of fun. And I feel a very strong <laughs> connection to the Holy Spirit says with it. it's a lot of fun, it's kind of weird. <laughs> Why is okay? Why can't God be fun? I'm not saying That's God can't be fun. I'm saying it just sounds weird. Okay, fair enough. Anyway. Most of the early church people were not about fun. <laughs> they just weren't. Okay, fair enough. Anyway, um, Jesus's first miracle was to make wine at a party. Enough said. Yeah. Anyway, um, <laughs> she was singing in tongues, and um, the doctor who was tending to her was going in and out of her room. And finally he stopped and he exclaimed, why are you singing in Hebrew? She doesn't know Hebrew. And so, um, there's a couple evidences of that. And then there finally, there's the third, and those are just the ones that I know off the top of my head. There's probably a lot more evidence of it. Um, the third version of speaking tongues is speaking tongues that comes with interpretation of tongues and normally that's considered the corporate gift um which i haven't heard of many instances of it actually happening but it's hard because speaking tongues and interpretation of tongues are normally understood to come from two different people um one has the tongue and one has the interpretation of it and so getting someone to stand up in front of the congregation and speak in tongues and then expecting that somebody else has the interpretation of that tongue people are still kind of daunted by that idea, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> even in charismatic circles um, where we're doing weird stuff. Um, <laughs> well, I'll just let, weird let from an outside it. perspective. Yes. Right, right. Um, but within your community, it's kind of like a naturally assumed thing. Right, definitely. Um, and not everybody can speak in tongues immediately after they're being saved. Um, have, it's, you, have you ever encountered a case where someone can never speak in tongues ever? Uh... That's hard to say because I would have had to have like followed them their entire life. Um, 
Yeah, that is I would, a weird I, question, isn't it? <laughs> it is a weird question. It's hard to answer. Um, I would say no, because with the gifts, you kind of have to pursue them and you have to understand them before you can properly use them. Um, what I mean by that is like, I'm not going to be given, like, like say somebody gave me uh, a motorcycle. That's a sweet gift. I would have no idea how to use that. I would have to learn and understand what it is and how I could use it before I could properly use it. To somebody else, if I gave them like a $2,000 gaming computer, they're not going to be able to use that to the fullest. They're not going to be able to even understand necessarily how to turn it on. Some people have deeper understanding, some don't. And that's the same idea between um, like prophecy and people who – and this is like a – this is going to sound weird. Uh, it's the same idea between prophecy and people who do tarot or read palms. Someone who was a palm reader before they were saved would kind of get a better understanding of what prophecy is and, and how to implement it and use it uh, versus someone who had no idea what it was and didn't know how to use it at all. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, and that sounds very odd. I would add to that statement that the enemy is a liar and he's a cheater and he's a counterfeiter. Huh. What the enemy does is – he counterfeits what God does. So tarot and uh, palm reading is a counterfeit of prophecy. Um, the I, I don't want. I'm not saying medicine is like a counterfeit of healing. Don't think that that's what I'm saying. But there are evidences of in the occultic of people being healed of something, and I would say that that's the counterfeit of of what God does. Okay, so charismatic theology, Satan is a distinctly oppositional force. Yes. Okay. So it's kind of like, uh, I want to use the word spiritual warfare, but I imagine that's a little more dramatic, or is it? No, no, that's that's very appropriate. Actually. Or is it appropriate? Okay, that's that's very appropriate. Um, spiritual warfare is actually, yeah, I could we could go into that, but that's for another podcast. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, when the enemy counterfeits something, it looks like something that God does because people innately understand that these are supernatural things that we don't that we don't normally see. There must be something tied to this. And so he'll try to counterfeit what God does in order to draw people to him. That's why people who are into Wicca or who are into um, other sort of religions will see things, will experience things that are completely real. But there's like a darkness attached to it rather than God where there's purity attached to it. Does that make sense? Kind of? Yeah. It's it's kind of ambiguous. I, I understand. think I need like more specific examples. Okay, can you give me an example of what you'd like an example of? Okay, can you explain what you mean again? As far as... Spiritual warfare and the like. Oh, okay. When, when you say spiritual warfare, what do you mean? Uh, like, I don't like... know, because... <laughs> <laughs> right, because I... When you say spiritual warfare, what do you mean? When I say spiritual warfare, I mean that there are demonic influences in this world. They can attack us. They can manifest against us when we allow ourselves to be open to those things. Okay, um, so the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, as most would call it, does that mean you, believers can be... I wouldn't say, I'm not sure if the word is influenced or possessed. Uh, it would be influenced. Um, however, because – and I believe in uh, free will. Um, I believe that the Holy Spirit is not going to force us to do anything. And I say that as with a caveat that God can do whatever he wants, and he has forced people to do things before. Um, I wouldn't say it's a possession. <laughs> Force people uh, to do things. Um, right. Do you mean from a biblical perspective or from a charismatic perspective? Yes. Okay. Uh, I haven't heard instances recently of it happening, but I've heard of stories of people who felt so compelled to do something that they had no other choice but to do it. Like there was a burning fire inside them and the fire said, do this. And it was – it ended up like them going to church and getting saved or something like that. You know what I mean? Yeah, I know what you mean. Okay. Um, but as a rule, and when you have rules with God, God will break your rules. Um, <laughs> as a rule, the Holy Spirit is a gentleman, and so he's not going to force you to do anything. Uh, <laughs> he's but a he... That's a great description. Thanks. Um, <laughs> the Holy Spirit is a gentleman. <laughs> um, <laughs> we're not talking British gentlemen here. Anyway, um, but... 
the idea is that he's not he he can influence you to do things like we can influence other people to do things but he's not going to make you do anything the counterfeit of that is the enemy will try to force you to do things and, and he he will also influence you to do things by ch- like changing your understanding of things through circumstances or influencing certain circumstances to make them look a certain way um which is what the, he does because he's a liar um but he will also use demonic forces, specific, like demons, to indwell in people uh, mm. and physically force them to do things. And this is... Okay, and this includes Christians and non-Christians alike. Right. Just so we're clear. Yes, this includes okay. Christians and non-Christians alike. Uh, I say that... Yeah, because I'm just... This is from my tradition. That's what they would say would be impossible. What, that a, demo- a demon could uh, force a Christian to do something? Yeah. Okay, so I say that with a caveat that a demon – people aren't just randomly going to get demon-possessed on the street. Yeah. What I, <laughs> I would what imagine I mean, there's something more technical going on here. Right, and the technical thing is when you open yourself to the demonic, specifically like looking into occultic things or, or um, like, like say doing a seance or anything along those lines, Ouija boards – um, I personally would also define yoga that way, but that's for another topic. <laughs> um, when you open yourself up to those things, you're opening yourself up to demonic manifestations. And so there's different levels to it, of course. Like if you start – like somebody sleeping uh, in a graveyard, for instance, would probably be something pretty heavy where you had opened yourself up to demonic forces interacting with you. Now – Demons and spirits and stuff are not omnipresent, but they do walk in the spiritual realm, which if we want to define that, there's different – it doesn't – it's not like a physical thing. Like they can be at different places at different times, but they're not everywhere all at once. Um, <laughs> and again, this is all theory and really theological discussion, but not – like saying I'm not necessarily saying that that's scriptural I'm saying that that's my understanding um, and so it requires more than just one instance it requires like because there's God's grace you know it re- like God will have grace for you doing one thing but if you continue to do that thing then that's considered like a sin you know what I mean yeah I'm not saying that if you do that thing once that you're not sinning but it's like a repeated thing. And so you and through sinning you're opening yourself up to doors or you're opening doors in yourself up to there being demonic influence. So like people who look at pornography are opening themselves up to demonic influence from spirits of infidelity or pornography or that sort of thing and therefore making the influence stronger. Um I've huh. personally experienced that. When I started looking at pornography, uh there came a point where I couldn't stop it was something that I couldn't, I couldn't stop, even if I wanted to, and I did want it to, because I was married at the time, and I didn't want to hurt my wife ah. that way. But I felt like I didn't have a choice, and so finally, when I understood that I had opened up that door and I had let that influence into my life, essentially creating something called a stronghold for the enemy to live in me, not like possessed, but like there was an influence going on in my life. After I understood that and I could break the hold of that influence, I've had very, very little issue with pornography since. So I've seen – I'm not just saying these things because this is what I believe. I'm saying this because I've seen the fruit of this sort of thing. Does that make sense? Yeah, I get that. Okay. And that's kind of what life is. Like we base what we believe on our experiences. And if we have negative experiences – and that's why you know we have to watch what we interact with in this life. Because if we have experiences and the enemy tries to color those experiences, our experience is going to be colored by what happened. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. And even psychology talks about that. Like when kids are traumatized when they're really little, they have really negative views upon life. But if somebody grows up with normal upbringing with two parents who love them and so on and so forth, they're probably not going to grow up to be an axe murderer. You know what I mean? (laughs) Axe murderer is bad. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. As a rule, an axe murderer is bad. Um, So... That was a nice little bunny trail. Um, <laughs> but um, speaking in tongues, where were we? Speaking in tongues? 
Yeah, something. That's that. originally where it came. That's originally where it came through. Um, oh, so great moves of God. So, um, speaking in tongues is one of the signs that the Holy of the Holy Spirit. Um, for me, recently. Um, after having done some inner healing, which that's another topic for another podcast and is really awesome. And that's something I want to do with my life. Um, I have started, uh, twitching like when I'm worshiping or when I'm praying, um, when I can feel the presence of the Holy spirit, my body will give like an involuntary, uh, jolt and it's not uncomfortable. Hmm. Um, it's kind of, I don't want to say that it's fun, but it is fun. <laughs> what is it? <laughs> the word fun. <laughs> there's that word again, because God wants us to have fun. Um, but I also understand it to mean that I'm more sensitive because I have um, gotten rid of the debris and the, the the shackles and such of the thing that I was healed from. I'm more sensitive to the Holy Spirit now. And so... Like, like, it's like there was this, there was this thing on my spirit where it was, it was stopping me from experiencing God more fully. And now that that's gone through inner healing, um, I can experience God more fully and explicitly. And the Holy Spirit manifests to everybody differently. Um, I know some people that will shake and shudder. They'll, their arms will flail and stuff and, and they'll, um, like make weird groanings. It's really weird. I also know people who are very strong in the gifts of the spirit that nothing weird happens to them. They'll speak in tongues every once in a while, but it's not like really intense weird. You know what I mean? Not intense weird. Right. (laughs) Which if you, uh, super intense weird, (laughs) right? Like speaking in tongues and in charismatic circles is like the norm. And so the super intense weird stuff is like shaking and shuddering and flailing around on the floor and, and that sort of thing. I th- believe that's where the term holy rollers came from. Yeah. People rolling around on the floor under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Um, and the idea behind that is when the presence of God, the creator of literally everything who is all powerful, uh, is around you, your physical body probably doesn't understand how to react to that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like you're like like it's it's the all powerful being who created the universe. It makes sense that your body is going to react abnormally. <laughs> Crazy. Right. Uh, another another manifestation is like really intense giggling, um, like laughter, crazy laughter, um, or just just pure joy. Like a really intense happiness will come over you. That is like like. It doesn't matter what's going on in your life. You just, you have peace and you have joy. You know what I mean? Um, So that's some of the ways that the Holy Spirit manifests. Um, There are other ways that I've heard of before. Nothing, nothing violent or angry. Nothing that looks like a demonic possession. Um, It looks similar to it, but that's because the enemy has counterfeited it and weirds people out with it in order so that when they see the things of God, they think it's a demonic possession. So do you think Zachary Oliver is weirded out by this? Very much so. <laughs> so do you think this is a problem for me, or do you think that perhaps I just have a different perspective on it? Um, I don't think that it's wrong that there are people who don't experience the gifts of the Spirit or experience the, like well, crazy – In the way in, in the cares, Right, right. Yeah, in the way that, which I define. Excuse me. Uh, when I say things <laughs> like that, I mean it coming from my perspective. Yeah. I don't think that it's wrong that people don't see things the way that I see them because God is a personal God. He experience, He comes to people personally and they experience – everybody experiences God differently. We all have a general same idea of God, but we all experience him differently. And so the fact that you don't shake and shudder and the fact that you don't speak in tongues, I don't feel that's necessarily wrong. Um, some people would say that – you haven't reached that point in your life where you're experiencing that, or you don't have the same understanding that I have. Um, but I'm not even going to go that far. I'm just going to say that God meets people differently because he's personal like that. You know what I mean? Which I think is a good way to look at it. (laughs) Right. So you don't get into like weird things like, 
like really bad uh, doctrinal splits and yeah. divisions in the church and oh your view of god is wrong because you don't shake and shudder on the floor which i was <laughs> i was in that camp for a little while i was like oh people who don't experience the gifts of the spirit oh they're they're prim and proper and blah 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 and it was very dumb yeah. and then god was like hey they're people too they loved me too kind of thing right exactly yeah. but i mean this exactly. happens with just about any kind of christian belief system Right, and that's the problem with theology. Uh, we we try to define God. We don't necessarily explain God. Explaining yeah. God is a personal sort of thing. In many respects, yeah, it can be. Yeah. I mean, I, I would imagine most Christians believe in a central set of doctrines, as we alluded to earlier. Right, it's like the just, Nicene Creed and that yeah. sort of thing. It's just that we <clears throat> tend to see them in different ways. Most definitely. Um, and then if you talk to uh, Josh Collar, who... Um, me and him have very similar sort of beliefs. He'll probably listen to the podcast and be like, yeah, that's all normal. That's all. Yeah, I, I get that, you know? <laughs> um, <laughs> and so it's not like I'm crazy. It's everyone else is crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm crazy. Right, right, right. Um, but that's, that's just some of the, the way that the Holy Spirit works. And the idea behind it is that, um, God is a trinity being. We would call him triune. We are also triune beings. Uh, we are. We have a body, which would be representative of Christ uh, in the physical flesh. We have. We are a spirit, um, which would be the Holy Spirit. That's why, like, my body reacts when I feel the presence of the Holy Spirit. Actually, right now it's happening. Um, uh, but also the soul aspect of it, because I would define us people as a body, spirit, and soul. Um, your body is your physical flesh. Your soul is your mind, your will, and emotions. And the spirit is kind of ambiguous, like the Holy Spirit. Um, <laughs> but your soul is more uh, akin to God the Father. And so we are a triune being. God is a triune being, Trinity sort of thing. I'm not saying we're gods. Don't think that's what I'm saying. But there's like a sort of... Um, like a uh, kind of reflection. We are a reflection of God. And so therefore it would make sense that as God is three parts, we are three parts. Huh. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. Cool. Yeah. I, uh, the Trinity thing is, you know, just different ways to look at it. So of course it totally is. And again, this is all coming from my perspective as a charismatic. Yeah. So, yeah. So I think we have exhaustively explained charismatic theology, at least new apostolic reformation, but I think most charismatics would agree, right? Uh, yeah, generally. Um, yeah. And that, and I just started talking about speaking in tongues. I haven't even talked about uh, prophecy or words of knowledge or anything like that. I would like to talk about that maybe as like an add-on to this podcast at some point. Yeah, um, at some because, point in the future. <laughs> right, because this is already huge. Um, yeah. And I feel that I didn't even necessarily adequately cover my end of what I believe of the Holy Spirit. But how can you define God? Honestly. Yeah, problematic. Right. All right. But I will go on my own little tangent here. <laughs> Please do. Please do. Because I've Just been talking a lot. About the Holy Spirit, I think in terms of, well, I would put myself close to the cessationist camp. But then again, to become a cessationist is also to say that X can't happen. But I right. think a lot of belief in that sector is a little more nuanced than a simple blanket statement. I would agree. For the whole of that. Like, I know at least Doug Wilson, who is a neo-Calvinist, most people would say. He does not believe in, like, you know, that sort of charismatic movement thing. But, on the other hand... Literally charismatic movement. Yeah, that kind of thing. <laughs> But I know that he and Mark Driscoll had a little bit of a tiff regarding this, not so much an argument as a frank discussion of ideas. And Mark Driscoll is definitely a believer in the power of the Holy Spirit in a way that's more like charismatic and less like reformed tradition. So, and I know a lot of people don't like Mark Driscoll, whatever. That's not the point of this conversation. <laughs> totally not. Yeah. But he said from what I read and what I saw when they were talking to each other on a stage in an actual church was that I am a cessationist as far as it goes, but I'm not willing to put God in a box regarding these particular things. So right. You're not even, willing to say that he can't yeah, or won't even on the far end, let's say of 
very conservative, uh, evangelical, reformed Baptist tradition, I'm pretty sure a lot of those people are not going to say, well, God can't do that, right? Right. So in terms of healing and in terms of miracles and that kind of thing, of course, they're going to perceive miracles in a different way than perhaps charismatics do. Right. In some sense, they're still going to believe that, like, God can heal people or that God can provide for financial need or that coincidences are not coincidences when it comes to like getting a new job or actually, actually I would define situation. No, I would define that as a miracle as well, actually. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I think they're not so much more limited, but they see that God works in like normal human life, like the way that they're just going on their day to day thing. Right. And then they can perceive that God's working in their life, but not in like a, um, not in the crazy way over dramatic like, way. Yeah, not tongues, not that kind of thing. Right, and so, I would, I would, I wouldn't say that that's necessarily wrong either. You yeah, know? it's yeah, it's not a denial of the charismatic experience. It's just like a more, you know, a toned down way. <laughs> <laughs> Conservative, you yeah. could say. Yeah, because I think that's probably what makes charismatics dangerous or scary to a lot of people. <laughs> <laughs> including which is, yourself which is kind of the dramatic thing well no, not necessarily it depends okay it's it's more about uh where those things can go and right at and, least, and yeah it can be a problematic thing but then again normal conservative traditions can be problematic in their own way so right <laughs> there are a lot of complications and i feel like you know it, uh, as a general definition of how you can like make sure that you're not going in a problematic direction when it comes to anything of God. If you wholeheartedly pursue God, you try to understand his word, you try to understand the things of God, things that the Bible says, things that preachers say, and your point in your life is to get closer to God. I don't think that God being a benevolent creator um, would allow you to experience something that's necessary negative or, or not him uh, that's kind of ambiguous but I mean what I'm trying to say is if you truly want to pursue and understand God I feel that God will meet you and whatever that looks like may look like to different people yeah. but I feel like God is going to meet you if you try to pursue him like to me it's probably more intellectual study of scripture right or right like and that. that's not wrong either and that's just my background and I can't help it that's just how I, I'm analytic Right. And for me, it's it's more of like a uh, experiential understanding of God. Like, I want to see miracles in my life. I want to see, like, manifestations of the Holy Spirit, so on and so forth. But there is a lacking on both sides of the camp. For me, I don't really have a super strong basis in theology or biblical understanding. Not to say that I'm completely biblically illiterate. I do understand some of it, but you probably understand a lot more than I do. For you, there's probably some aspects of the manifestation of God in the physical that may be lacking. That's not to say one camp is necessarily correct or the other. That's only to say that we're all still growing as people. Hmm. Would you say that's accurate? Yeah. Okay. I think I could deal with that. Cool. (laughs) All right. So any final conclusions since we want to keep this at a a reasonable running length? (laughs) Right. Um, My final conclusion is do your own research. Like, we can only give you so much, uh, especially in a one-hour soundbite. Yeah, I Um, mean, saying Theology 101 is basically saying this is pretty basic stuff. (laughs) Right. Understand God at your own level and pursue Him, and He'll meet you. Yeah. And you may be more like me, or you may be more like Michael, and these are not bad things. Not at all. They will affect the way that you're going to search out God. Right. Significantly. <laughs> Definitely. And and they will affect the way that you understand God. But when that is your focus, is understanding God, I don't think that there's anything wrong with that. It is hard to lose. Yes. Say. Very hard. <laughs> Do you have any final thoughts? No. I think I kind of outlined it clearly. There you go. All right. So this has been Theology 101, and I wish we had a cool theme song. Please send me a cool theme song. <laughs> and usually we do the Theology Gaming Podcast, which is about video games. Yeah, because video games are fun. <laughs> now, if you like video games and you like <laughs> theology or Christianity or any of that other kind of stuff, you might want to subscribe to us. So go on iTunes or find our RSS feed or whatever and subscribe to us. 
And if you would like to give us a five-star rating on iTunes, that would be much appreciated. Very much. And if you could share it with friends and family and people that you think might be interested, that'd be awesome, too. Very much. And if you'd like to talk to us, we are on the Facebook group, Theology Gaming University. Ha ha. Because we like to talk about things in a university environment where we can freely talk about any kind of subject you can imagine. No restrictions. Just don't uh, curse incessantly at me. Right. (laughs) (laughs) So if you'd like to join the group, just ask for an invite and we'll be happy to let you in. And if you would like to shamelessly self-promote yourself, Michael Jones, and I don't think you have anything to promote... Uh, just that um, I've recently taken, and we talked about this a tiny bit, I've recently taken a position at TGU as the um, uh, something, or the pastoral guidance counselor. <laughs> counselor. Counseling, 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 guidance counseling pastor. That's what it is. Yeah, so talk to him. At the end of the line of, like, you want help in your life? Maybe I can help you out. I can know some things. I, I like make God. This more clear on the actual theology of the universe. <laughs> is, it even, is it even in the bio yet? I don't even think it's in the bio. <sighs> okay. Anyway, like Brian Ad. Yeah, but but you should talk to me and stuff. Um, yeah, talk to you. my information's on there, and and I should talk to you. Yeah, or any of us. Anyway, <laughs> any of us. Yeah. That. <laughs> All right. Well, this has been Theology One Hundred and One, Theology Gaming Podcast Subgenre. <laughs> so I will see you next time. Say goodbye. Bye bye.